Hello, this is your host, Jennifer Baker, and welcome to the Human Brain Project podcast, where we talk to the scientists and researchers that have dedicated their lives to solving the mysteries of the human brain. We discover the humans behind the science and find out how tomorrow's discoveries will be shaped. On today's episode, we are talking to Dr. Miha Petrovic, a physicist and computational neuroscientist at the University of Bern. He leads a team that is working at the intersection of biological and artificial intelligence. Thank you for joining us. Uh, Miha, let's start uh, by finding out and telling our audience a bit about what you're working on day to day. We want to know what are your goals and what gets you out of the bed in the morning? Sure. Um, so first of all, thank you very much for having me. And um, well, we are interested in very roughly speaking, intelligence. So intelligence is an, an emergent property, obviously, it, it arises from the circuitry of the brain. Um, so the questions that, as you put it, get us out of bed are, are some, some really big ones. You know, what are the circuits that ultimately make us who we are and allow us to do the cognitive things that, that we do, right? Um, now, of course, this is a, a grand question. So um, in our day-to-day -day work, we start by addressing maybe a bit more modest questions. So we are looking at particular skills that humans and animals in general have. For example, things like uh, image recognition or the ability to recognize a song. Um, so, so what are the circuits that enable us to recognize a person? And then more importantly, how are these circuits learned? So uh, for example, when you, when you asked for this interview, I took a look at your website and um, I saw a picture of you. Now in total, I must have seen it maybe what, two or three times and I looked at it for say a couple of seconds and still, I'm pretty confident that I could recognize you if I saw you on the street. Now, compared to that, the, um, the image recognition networks that are typically used by giants in the field like Facebook and Google, they need millions of pictures to tell apart a dog from a car. Uh, so, so clearly, we have an advantage there. So how do we do it? What are the circuits underlying these capabilities? This is one of the main research areas of our lab. Well, you're a physicist as well. So how does that work with, you know, some of these, in some ways, quite esoteric questions like how does our brain work? What is it that makes ourselves ourselves? And what is intelligence? Where did you come into this sector? How did the physicist side of you come into it? During my, my study of physics, I worked at some point with complex systems. So... I worked a little bit in particle physics. There you also have a complex system of interacting particles. Then I moved to low temperature to solid state physics, where clearly also the macroscopic phenomena that you observe are due to strong microscopic interactions. Simple things like, for example, the phase change when ice turns to water and then to vapor. This is due to the interaction of molecules, so water molecules. And the same thing is true about the brain, essentially. So it's the interaction between neurons that is mediated by synapses uh, that gives rise to, to all these interesting phenomena that I've just been talking about. So ultimately, this is um, a question of physics. How do these macroscopic phenomena boil down to microscopic interactions between the constituents of brain matter? 
That makes sense then where you're coming from and, and how that's progressing. Looking to the future, what sort of goals do you have in mind? I know that the day-to-day work is fascinating and interesting, but what would success look like to you? Or are there practical applications? So I think that we would measure success along two dimensions. Uh, one of them would be uh, to, to better understand how the circuits of the biological brain operate to to understand to correlate signals neuronal signals that we observe for example particular sequences of spikes to cognitive phenomena such as recognizing a particular pattern on the other hand we're also interested in, in transferring these ideas and these results to artificial systems on one hand to algorithms and on the other hand to their instantiation in artificial systems, that is hardware. So there, a measure of success would be to observe that one of these brain-inspired algorithms that we have derived from our from the more neuroscientific aspects of our work, uh, how they are instantiated in this hardware and how they then allow this hardware to perform better than existing solutions along various metrics, such as, for example, speed or power consumption, or just pure computational accuracy or strength at the particular problem that they're trying to solve. And can I ask what sort of common questions you get asked by lay people um, when you describe what it is that you're working on? Because it is really fascinating to so many people, but we struggle to get a little bit of a handle on it. Is there something that people constantly demand to know from you? Mm, So... When I give um, talks for the public, I try to talk about these algorithms that we are studying. And I think people find it very interesting that machines that we build that use completely different physics than the physics of the brain ultimately are capable of carrying out, if not necessarily the exact same, then very similar computations. People tend to ask, so what about consciousness? Do these machines have consciousness? Um, And then the discussion quickly goes into the direction of artificial general intelligence and of uh, the hopes and fears that people have in relation to the subject. Well, we don't have a general intelligence, artificial intelligence at the moment. How far away are we from it? Well, as you know, predictions are difficult, especially about the future, right? Um, I think we still have some way to go. mainly because the systems that we have right now are very specialized. So they're extremely successful and even superhuman at particular tasks, such as playing games from Go to StarCraft, navigating vehicles, I think is getting there. Hopefully soon we will have very good diagnosticians for medical purposes, maybe even better than experienced doctors. The thing that is missing is the, the G in AGI, so the, the, the general aspect, the capability of these systems to actually perform multiple tasks and to transfer their capabilities and their experience from one task to another. This is something that is, is very difficult to achieve just because the, the, the circuits that solve these problems are, by construction, very specialized. I was going to say on the order of decades to get there, but uh, sometimes things uh, work out faster, as we have observed over the last decade, and sometimes things uh, work out more slowly. So maybe I shouldn't make a, a concrete prediction about time, 
But um, I, I will say that this is the big challenge. And from looking to the future, let's do a 180 and look to the past, because one of the things we're doing on these podcasts is trying to get to know people like yourself, the real people and humans behind all of these discoveries and the technology. I know your background, uh, you you do come from a family of physicists, as it were. Um, Tell me a bit about what influenced your career choices and, and why you've chosen to go in the direction you have. Yes, exactly. As you said, I... um my parents are both physicists, and it's fair to say that I have been greatly um, influenced by them. So they're both nuclear physicists. My um, father is an experimentalist. My mother is a theoretician. And um, already as a kid, it was fascinating to get these, at that time, very superficial, but still insights into these crazy phenomena that happen um, at scales so far apart, you know, from electrons whizzing around atomic nucleus um, to at the other end of the scale, things like black holes and galactic superclusters. And um, yeah, at that time, also very early on, I came into contact with uh, mathematics, which is inevitable if um, you're living in a family of physicists. Um, and even to me as a kid, mathematics was very appealing because it can make such you know, strong, reliable statements, um, statements of absolute right and wrong within the confines of a particular set of axioms. You know, the miraculous thing is that mathematics can be applied to our physical world to, to make predictions, as Eugene Wigner remarked. Later on, as a teenager, I became fascinated by um, genetics because uh, to me it was really, um, first of all, the, the complexity of this machinery. And then on the other hand, it's the fact that this entire machinery essentially you know, reads a tape and uses it to ultimately build us. You know? So especially the fact that so much of us is actually <laughs> stored on what is effectively a, a tape, I found, I found very intriguing. So because of this, I, for some time, I considered going into biology or medicine, maybe also in part as an act of rebellion against my parents. Um, but then ultimately, I decided in favor of physics. Medicine appeared to me, and it still appears to me, as really dauntingly complicated. And um, phys physics appears simpler to me. And it also promises crisper, harder answers to, to certain uh, big questions. So, yeah, you could say that, in part, my career was, um, if not set in stone, then at least strongly predetermined my, uh, by my upbringing. And, um, but then came the choice of, of where to do my PhD. Uh, which ultimately determined my, my later career in, in computational neuroscience. And this was um, highly serendipitous. And I, I hear this from many of my friends and acquaintances that some of the biggest turning points in their lives uh, were not necessarily decided by, by rational thought. So, so in that case, uh, for me, it was my, my girlfriend, well, I should say, should say wife, we were married by now, uh, <laughs> who was um, studying in Mannheim. And uh, I wanted to find something close to... Uh, to that place. So I was considering actually going into quantum computing, uh, but then I took a closer look at research groups in uh, at my university in Heidelberg, which is close to Mannheim. And I discovered the electronic visions group who were working on, or still are working to this day on, on neuromorphic hardware. And uh, I guess the rest is history. And I, this turned out to be, I, I'm really convinced, I should say luckiest professional um, 
decision of my entire life because this creates a nice um, loop back to my um, earlier and still ongoing passion for biology because now I'm doing both physics and biology to some extent. It's interesting that you were considering quantum computing because we've spoken to people on this podcast who see some sort of similarities. Have you encountered any of that? In terms of computing, meaning that you have a, a physical device that processes information in some way, I guess brains and quantum computers share similarities. Um, but brains are, are fundamentally classical devices. So, so the similarities are very limited. Um, now, quantum computing is an, an extremely exciting field. And maybe, you know, in some sense, it's more, even more appealing for a physicist because it's a lot better understood. The underlying physics are, are very clear. The underlying algorithms are clear. The machinery is well understood. And you have, and this is particularly different in biology, you have a large measure of control over your experiments when you do quantum computing. Um, but the difference, the important difference to me at least, is that, at least for now, um, the so-called quantum supremacy, so the areas in which quantum computers clearly beat classical computers, this quantum supremacy only applies to certain very specific problems and algorithms. So this is why, personally, I find greater appeal in neuroscience, because obviously we have a lot to learn from the brain that we can then later apply to our classical and not necessarily quantum computers. Well, you mentioned earlier about the, the concrete certainties of mathematics and physics. Is there a sense that you also need, um, if you like, less certain uh, traits like imagination, creativity? To what extent do those sorts of traits play a role in the sort of work you're doing? So, obviously, <laughs> from the, for a scientist, imagination and creativity are essential. Um, now, in terms of imagination and creativity as they happen in the brain, I don't necessarily see a contradiction between the largely deterministic nature of the physics at play in the brain um, and the obvious fact that we are beings endowed with imagination and creativity. So uh, this is actually an important part of our own work here in our lab, uh, where we explain the apparent stochasticity or, or randomness uh, of the brain, how it arises from deterministic interactions between its components, and how it then be harnessed for solving particular problems. For example, one, one area would be stochastic inference, where you receive limited and uncertain information and you need to take a decision based on this information. So, for example, there are lots of these bistable images. You have a single image, but you need a little bit of randomness to be able to switch between the two interpretations of the image. And then, of course, um, on an even higher processing scale, let's say, um, you need this kind of randomness to be able to interconnect concepts and ideas that appear disconnected at first, but um, 
that when put together, solve a problem in a novel way or are capable of solving a problem that you are incapable of solving before. Some people report happens during at night, during dreaming. They dream about um, the problems that they had the day before and whether they remember their dreams or not, they wake up and miraculously have found a solution in their sleep. And uh, one of our actually most recent publications deals exactly with uh, this, these phenomena during dreaming and with the way that the brain could harness a form of creativity during dreaming to better store the memories that it has made during the day and improve its capabilities of making new memories. It's a lovely idea that we can all become more effective while we're sleeping, which is just great in terms of time use. Um, now, let me move on to the Human Brain Project. Tell me a bit about what has been the added value for you. How have you found interacting with other members? What's, what's been the key standouts? I think it's very important, especially in our field, to have continuous interactions with experts in different subfields. So there are a lot of components to the big quest of understanding the brain. You need to understand uh, molecular biology. You need to understand um, circuitry of the brain, systems biology. You need to be able to um, simplify all of these insights into mathematical models. This is where you need mathematicians. And this is also where you need physicists, because in physics, this is one of the core um, aspects to physics, to observe phenomena and then put them into a simple set of equations that can then predict how these phenomena will evolve in the future. Um, so the human brain projects are unique um, in, in bringing um, people from these various disciplines together and encouraging them to communicate and uh, really offering this forum um, of expertise to the various experts in their own field. Now, of course, you could argue that um, this could be easily achieved um, otherwise. Uh, clearly, I could uh, just make a quick uh, phone call and have a video conference with any other expert in any other field. But um, being together in a room uh, makes a huge difference. And this is how strong collaborations arise. And this is how, um, I would say, quite a few beautiful results have been produced. Um, well, tell me a bit then um, about whether you've had any big challenges to overcome in your career. When you were starting out going to university, what advice would the current you give to uh, the Miha of that age? Any sort of insights that you want to share? Yeah, that's... Uh... You know, that's a, a really difficult one because... <laughs> yeah, so I'm told quite often. <laughs> so I have to say, looking looking back to my personal path, I was really, really lucky with the people in my life, with my friends, my colleagues, my mentors, who really made me into a better scientist and definitely um, a better person. So yeah, looking back I to my younger self, I think he took quite a good path but to a huge extent by the merit of, of others in his life. So that being said, clearly I could have done lots of things better. Um, now, I, I don't know if my younger self would have been capable of this, but uh, I, I would advise him to be more patient in general, in, in research and in life. You know, in, in so many situations, just take a deep breath, 
lean back and, and maybe think a bit longer. This, this good um, friend of mine says that one should always sleep over things, even smaller decisions. And uh, I, I think he's, he's uh, very wise in, in saying that. I'm not sure I would have been capable of this, but uh, I wish I could have. <laughs> yeah, and, and another thing maybe is that um, I would say that there are, there are more often, more, more dimensions to, to a problem than just right or wrong. So um, clearly in science, some claims are just demonstrably wrong, and it's important to state it as such, of course. But um, it's, it's pretty clear also, once you have a bit of experience, that you can learn a lot from, from ideas that ultimately do not work out. Mm-hmm. Um, so I would tell my younger self to maybe take every setback, and clearly there's lots of those in research, um, as a lesson uh, learned and, and try to find the value in it. And um, actually, you know, thinking at a maybe a bit larger scale, the same point about the this inadequacy of, of this uh, right versus wrong dichotomy uh, applies all the more to human interactions. So um, I would advise my younger self to treat situations more calmly and to try to empathize um, with the other person. And maybe even, and I know that's particularly hard, um, steel man their arguments as opposed to strawmanning them, mm-hmm. and and very often I um, I think one will reach insights that you know would have otherwise been uh, inaccessible if you were just confined to your own very limited consciousness. And so you can, at the end, you can teach and learn at the same time. Well, I think if you ever give up the neurophysicism, you will be an excellent diplomat. I mean, that's a very, very comprehensive answer. Uh, Last question. Uh, What do you do for fun? Do you ever switch off from work? (laughs) Um, I was going to say work, but I guess that's not a valid answer. (laughs) Um, Yeah, yeah, definitely. Uh, One needs to do that. Maybe this is also a good piece of advice um, to students in their early stages, especially, because they tend to overwork themselves. And I think it's very, very important to um, to also find free time, time for other things. So um, yeah, I, I share actually quite a lot of hobbies with my, my colleagues and friends, and we do quite a lot of things together. Um, for example, uh, board games, um, computer games, um, sports. I, um, like many other people, enjoy reading, although I guess um, I, I don't get to do this enough these days, but uh, yeah, especially science fiction, uh, but also maybe unsurprisingly uh, philosophy of mind, uh, mm-hmm. moral philosophy. And uh, I, I really enjoy um, the discussions that I have uh, with friends and, and colleagues on these topics. And uh, as I said, I, um, we're doing lots of sports. I used to do quite a lot of um, team sports, uh, especially basketball and volleyball. And, and uh, yeah, <laughs> thinking of it, not nearly enough these days. And more recently, um, I've been doing um, a lot of bouldering and martial arts. Cool. And uh, yeah, maybe the latter is a bit uh, surprising. <laughs> but it's a really, it's a, it's a great training of body and mind. And, uh, you know, there's some uh, takeaway from my research here is that you really need to be mindful about uh, hits to your head. Of course, yes. Well, thank you very much, Miha. And indeed, thank you to our audience for listening. And do stay with us on the Human Brain Podcast for more interviews with scientists and researchers talking about their involvement in HBP.
We hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Human Brain Project podcast. If so, please subscribe and leave a five-star rating, and most importantly, share with a friend. To learn more about the Human Brain Project, please visit humanbrainproject.eu and be sure to check out other episodes in this series packed with fascinating insight into how our minds work. Thanks for listening.